Hey all, Zoe here. I just wanted to give a quick shout out over to the cast and crew of The Lucky Die. If you guys enjoy the hijinks we get up to on this podcast, you guys are definitely going to enjoy The Lucky Die. It is a 5e D&D actual play podcast about some cool, dark, and dramatic tales. It's really interesting. Immediately grabbed me. So definitely check it out and give them some love. You see, looking up from the ground, blood red clouds boiling across the sky. You did ask me to bring the thunder. (laughs) Dejan! Dejan! Help! I've got the chalice, please! Well, if they're following you, then I guess that takes care of a loose end for me. (laughs) All of you feel the earth beneath you shake and crack and break. I feel that I have failed both of you. And I am sorry for that. This has nothing to do with you being a bad leader. Do you want a countdown? Oh, I think I want a countdown. I want to help. I always had good intention. I did not deserve to die. Now. The Lucky Die Podcast is a weekly 5e Dungeons & Dragons actual play podcast. Join our adventure every Monday, wherever you download podcasts, by searching for The Lucky Die. Pointing the finger at the Middle Ages, we bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Hey everyone, Future Zoe here again. We hope you loved our part one with Kate about Buddhism, medieval Buddhism, and everything associated with that, including apparently Star Wars. But if you haven't checked that one out, definitely do. And welcome to part two, where we cover the story from the Great Tang Records on the Western regions. Unfortunately, Kate had to leave partway through the story, so we cover half of it with her and half of it without her. And with that, we hope you enjoy this part. And don't forget to check out Kate's work at drkatehartman.com. So shall we actually jump into our story for today? Yes. We're yes. just going to read one because we don't have a lot of time, but it is it is like five pages, so this might go long. We might have to cut this episode into two parts, but I have a story. All right. And Kate, feel free to jump in at any time. Interrupt me, interrupt Mac. We just, we go through and we stop as necessary. Yes. You guys are the experts in, in how to run this, so. <laughs> we are not experts in anything. As far as I'm concerned, while I am reading the story, your job is to interrupt whenever you have something interesting to say about it, or just something to say about it in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm looking at two translations right now. So, like, there's the the Beale version, which is, I think, 1884. And so he's one of these kind of colonial era people. 
what's also interesting is like you have what are called armchair translators that like never went to Asia, but they learned Sanskrit or in this case, this would have been classical Chinese and translate and often sort of maybe impose their own views or as we say, make certain omission decisions. But then I'm also looking at a 1995 translation by Li Rongxi from the Nomada Center for Buddhist Translation. As we've mentioned frequently on the podcast, we all the ones we read from directly rather than paraphrasing or summarizing are stuff that's in the public domain because A, legal issues we want to be careful. B, that usually means it's available free online for our listeners to also go read. But as we talk about frequently, that means that a lot of these are old and updated translations would obviously be probably better because there are yep. there are problems and we we do reference our modern translations as well as necessary so so absolutely stop me whenever i get to something that is different in the new translation because I, I want i want to talk about those things great all right so ahem. going northwest 140 or 150 lee from the statue of man why did i pick this one <laughs> Bodhisattva. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, that's how that translation. Find the other one. Because I, I have no idea from that tra- translation what this means. Oh, they're saying that that's Avalokiteshvara. That has very few phonemic similarities. Kwanyin? Avalokiteshvara. How did they get from Kwan to Avalokiteshvara? <laughs> I mean, they may be writing like, so Guanyin is the Chinese Bodhisattva that accords to Sanskrit Avalokiteshvara. So what's interesting when you're translating a Chinese person writing about places of Sanskrit, like do you, what do you translate that as? And mm-hmm. rendering Sanskrit or Chinese. I mean, one of the interesting things is that Guanyin in China is gendered female, Avalokiteshvara in India gendered male. Wow. So I don't know when or how that gender swap happened. Huh. Yeah, we can stay on a trans bodhisattva. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Alright, so, in a place that's actually quite far from that statue, we come to the mountain of Lan Po Lu. The crest of this mountain has a dragon lake, about 30 li or so in circuit. The clear waves roll in their majesty, the water pure as a bright mirror. In old days, Pilutsekia, I think, who has a different name in parentheses, Virudaka Raja. Virudaka Raja. Thank you. It's easier to pronounce Sanskrit. I, um, my Sanskrit is much better than my Chinese. Honestly, that it is a more closely related language to English, as, as we mentioned. Still not very close, but at least it's the same language family. And Virudakaraja is a, a mythical figure. He's one of the four heavenly kings. So one of the things that Buddhist cosmology has is lots of different heavens of different ranks. And one of them is the realm of heavenly kings who have this kind of protector role. But some of these figures are kind of quasi-historical, mystical, unclear. Interesting. They're reading him as an opponent of the Shakyas, who we'll get to in the next line. So we will. All right, so Virudaku Raja, having led his army to attack the Shakyas, four of the tribe resisted the advance. I assume that's the tribe of the Shakyas. Yes, and the Shakyas are important because that is the Buddha's clan. Ah. So um, Shakyamuni Buddha... So his name is Siddhartha Gautama. He is from the Shakya clan. And so this is a story that is important to Xuanzang by virtue of how it explains a king who ruled in the region that he's currently traveling in 
during the time of the Buddha. So in some ways, this is a story like, oh, like I'm traveling through Wyoming during the time of the Buddha. Like a relative Here's, Buddha yeah. was fighting this other guy here and like this happened. So he's kind of talking about the quasi mythical history of the physical place that he is at, which is interestingly in sort of like Northwest India slash Pakistan. This is why we need experts for, for these texts, <laughs> because I would, I would have just gone right past that. No idea. The four that resisted the advance were driven away by their clansmen, and each fled in a different direction. One of the Shakyas, having left the capital of the country and being worn out by travel, sat down to rest in the middle of the road. There appeared now a wild goose, who in his flight alighted before him, and because of his docile ways... I think this writer has never met a goose. <laughs> well, so the, the Sanskrit here is hamsa. And hamsas are really important in both... It's more famous in Hinduism today, insofar as you have like the cosmic hamsa that flies around. And this was a problem for early translators because we don't think of geese as like fun or interesting. So in a lot of early translations, they translate hamsa as swan. You know, because like swans are like glamorous animals that have more symbolism in English, but goose is more accurate. <laughs> I mean, I do think of geese as fun and interesting, but more in the ways that they are heralds of chaos and violence. Mm -hmm. But you could have these humsas and they can be big. So like people will ride on humsas and I'm trying to think of. Oh, that's cool. Who sort of canonically rise, rides on a humsa. I'm going to assume that this is just a, a cultural bias on my part from childhood encounters with Canadian geese, which are presumably entirely different. Mm -hmm. Yes, they are different. And Hamza is thought to refer to the bar-headed goose, but Rama, the creator of the universe, rides on a Hamza, according to kind of classic Indian mythology. Every god has its mount that you yes. ride on. I'm making a note of that because that's a great idea to have a goose as a mount. And there, you know, so the other kind of pop culture reference here, and I, I know I'm getting my like sort of fandoms mixed up, but like the eagles of Lord of the Rings. Yep. Yes, we are very familiar. <laughs> are often, you know, and people wonder, is that like, so Garudas in Sanskrit are also like big flying eagly birds, Kamsas big flying eagly birds. So people debate whether Tolkien like had any of these as models. Interesting. I did not expect a Tolkien reference. Yeah. Maybe this is because it, my knowledge of them has been filtered through modern fantasy, but Garudas are, aren't they like semi-humanoid? It can vary. So similarly to these Nagas, like you'll have more human-y versions and then you'll have more animal-y versions. One of my favorite uh, fantasy novels has a Garuda as a major character and that's my, like... Mm -hmm. That's where my knowledge of the word comes from entirely. China Mieville, Perdido Street Station. Very good book. Oh, yes. That's right. Yeah, it's said to be the king of the birds. Whereas, so Garuda is like a more mythic bird, whereas Humsas like actually exist. Like everyone can see them, but they have also this mythic function. Makes sense. All right. Yeah, in some ways, like, I've, uh, it's interesting to try to put all of this into words, because in some ways these are in the background of like texts all the time, but I don't really... You don't have to think about it all the time. Yeah. All right. So we've got the humsa. Right. I'm just going to try and remember to call it a humsa instead of a goose because of, <laughs> I feel like that works better. Because of the humsa's docile ways, he at last mounted on his back. The humsa then flying away took him to the side of this lake. By this mode of conveyance, the Shakya fugitive visited different kingdoms in various directions. 
Once, having mistaken his way, he went to sleep by the side of the lake under the shadow of a tree. At this time, a young Naga maiden was walking beside the lake, and suddenly espied the Shakya youth. Okay, so I assume this is a Naga in their, like, humanoid form. Yeah, and it's unclear, like, how human, because at one point he, um, you know, spoiler alert, but is going to try to cut off her head, but only the snake part of her head. And I was confused about what that meant. <laughs> but, so, in the other translation, they kind of talk about this more. Oh. So in line three on page 89, if anyone has this version, if not, no worries. Fearing that her shape was unfit and then it has brackets, so the translator's adding this, to appear before a stranger, comma, she changed herself into a human being and stroked him. So like yes. this version uh... has her shape shift. So the implication then is I think her wish is to to hit on him. Yeah, yeah to get with him. Yeah. yeah. She thinks he's pretty. Yeah, so the next sentence in this version is, fearing that she might not be able otherwise to accomplish her wish, i.e. apparently to hit on him, she transformed herself into a human shape and began to caress him. Which I, I find a little strange, not just because she's being a little creepy here, but because the translator described her as walking in the previous sentence, where if she was a snake, she does not have legs mm -hmm. and cannot do that. Yeah, she's shapeshifting. So... I feel like there's a lot of ambiguity about what she looked like before she shapeshifted into an explicitly human form. Yeah. The youth, because of this, awoke affrighted from his sleep, reasonable, and addressing her said, I am but a poor wanderer, worn out with fatigue. Why then do you show me such tenderness? An unusual response to waking up to find a stranger touching you. Yeah. And then, and then it gets vague in the translation. So it says, in the course of matters. It does. It does say in the course of matters. Does the newer one say something else? The youth becoming deeply moved, which sounds like he's like sort of emotional, prayed her to consent to his wishes. So like in the Beale translation, she wants to accomplish her wish, but then prayed to her to consent to his wishes. What wishes are those? So in the other translation... Shaki was started and he asked her, I'm a poor traveler. Why are you so intimate with me? Then he tried to be affectionate with the girl and attempted to have illicit intercourse with her. <laughs> ah, I see. Much less delicate, shall we say. Yeah. Then the girl said, if I had permission of my parents, I should be able to comply with your wishes. So like, I mean, maybe the, the implication here is that her wish is to marry him and his mm. wish is not to do that. You know, this is always a problem with our Victorian translators. I prefer Cockaine's approach. Cockaine is a guy um, who translated a list of medieval um, remedies. And he would do the thing where if there was something that his Victorian sensibilities would not allow him to write down, he'd switch into Latin. Yes, that happens a lot with the Sanskrit translations as well. And I love I, that. Either leave stuff out or translate it into Latin. I feel like the Latin approach is better because at least then we know there's something there. Mm -hmm. Yes, this is just kind of like... Unclear. We don't quite know what's going on, but in any regard, there there's a disagreement in the affections. Mm -hmm. And it really does. I mean, it's like sort of fun because it's like a, a fun, sexy detail, but also is interesting insofar as the protagonist of this. Is he a good guy or not? Right. Like the more modern translation basically says he attempted to have illicit intercourse with her. And I'm sure it's the same word from the precepts mm -hmm. of like sexual misconduct. He tried to do a sexual misconduct with her. And so in, in that version, he's kind of like a little bit, you know, an amoral protagonist. Mm -hmm. Whereas in this version, 
the Beale version, he comes off as more sort of transparently like a morally good guy. Yeah, more chivalrous, more of a knightly figure. So when it says illicit, like, I don't know what, what the rules are for, for Buddhism. Is that just outside of marriage? Mm-hmm. So this book that I'm pointing to in my video is a very long book by Jose Cabezon. That's called Buddhism and Sexuality in India. I forget if that's the exact title or if that's a paraphrase. So a lot to say on this particular subject. That is a large book, yes. Mm-hmm. What counts as sexual misconduct is interesting and varies. The kind of um, most basic version. So if you're a monk, no sexual contact whatsoever. If you're a nun, like nothing. You can't even be seen alone with someone of the opposite gender. Generally, sexual misconduct would have been with someone other than, so like inappropriate partner, someone other than a person that you are married to, inappropriate time. So it's generally considered against the rules in this early period. And again, this totally changes according to cultural context. You're not supposed to have sex during the day. You're not supposed to have sex during Buddhist festivals and like high holy days if you've taken temporary vows. So, you know, it can be wrong person, wrong time, wrong place. This is total heterosexual penis and vagina is okay. Anything else? No go. These sound weirdly familiar. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Students are always like kind of disappointed that Buddhists are prudes. And it's like, I don't know why. I'm you disappointed that they're prudes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, you know, certainly there's interesting s- stuff that varies, but it's, it's, it's decently it's pretty conservative. Normative, shall we say, yeah. in quotes. All right. So, so it is possible that when this text says he attempted illicit intercourse, they just mean they're not married. Like, it's not that right. he necessarily did something or... that we would recognize as wrong. Yeah, and Buddhism does have concepts of, like, if someone is too young, like, if someone is not, you know, you can't just, like, be raping people. Yep. One assumes that that's considered illicit in every culture. <laughs> yes, where similarly, like, the general concept of morality here is, like, not so different. You're not supposed to have sex in a place where a Buddha statue is, so, like, in your shrine room... Like where a Buddha image is, that's no good. You're not supposed to have sex what, outside. What if you turn the image so it's not facing you? I think it's the space, Mac. <laughs> yeah. You gotta like look around, you know, make sure there's no... There's no Buddha peeping on you. Sensibilities. And there's other, you know, sort of other ways this gets interpreted. Often Buddhist texts don't actually spell this out. You have to do a lot of work to figure out this stuff because it kind of goes without saying. Mm-hmm. Like, so we have an idea of sexual misconduct in our current time, and just like the rules have changed. And in different times and places, different things were like, okay. Makes sense. It's one of those things, it's so obvious you don't need to write down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Buddhism does have really sort of interesting views of gender and sex. There's often a third sex recognized, and some people want to hold that up as like, oh, Buddhism recognizes like multiple forms of gender expression, like how progressive. And other people point out that this third gender is a broad category for anyone who doesn't fit into the normative gender binary. And they're often regarded as like tricky and they're not allowed to become monks or nuns because the tradition doesn't know where to put them. We're inclusive, but we're jerks about it. You know, it doesn't easily get mapped onto contemporary politics. So folks of different kind of orientations will read this history and be like, oh, like here's like, inspirational sort of like historical example and other people will say no that totally doesn't even matter like right so but you do get different ideas about gender and sexuality i mean i I have to feel like it's at least a step forward that they recognize their existence 
yeah, and you'll have, you know, people who like just don't fit in to stuff or like recognition that some people are born, you know, gender non-binary or intersex. Intersex, yeah, yeah. Yes. Interesting. Yeah, so there's a there's a lot of really interesting stuff and I'm always you know, the thing you'll mention it to students and they're like, Oh, let's let's do more about that. But often I'm like, guys, we gotta get back. We gotta we gotta go. We have a semester. I, you know, I t- this is the state of Wyoming. We, we can't spend too much time on this. <laughs> you should try pitching a, a special topics course. It's just like the third gender in Buddhism or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is another sort of source that can be linked. My advisor um, at Harvard wrote um, an article about, in particular, like the Tibetan implications of gender stuff called one plus one equals three. And she's reading it from a feminist perspective. Her name is Janet Gyatso. So I'll, I'll remember to send you guys that link. Yes, Please. definitely. And so there's there's lots of different ways that this stuff has been read, but the way I'm reading this is here's an unmarried young lady, so Makes she is sense. not to be intercoursed with. Yeah. Yep. All right. Fair enough. So yes, as you said, uh, she responds. My father and mother require to be asked and obeyed in this matter. You have favored me with your affection, but they have not yet consented. The Shakya youth replied. The mountains and valleys surround us with their mysterious shades. Where then is your home? That's so artful. <laughs> it is. Also, a fair response that he probably should have brought out earlier, which is, hey, we're in the middle of nowhere. Where did you come from, exactly? Mm-hmm. And the other version has, like, in this wilderness of mountains and valleys, where is your home? He's, like, looking around. He doesn't see human dwellings. Yeah. She said, I am a Naga maiden belonging to this pool. I have heard like a, like a pool for swimming laps. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's better in some ways because some of these uh, are translated as Naga tank, which just sounds like we're keeping them <laughs> in an aquarium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and tanks would have been kind of like the reservoir equivalent. So in India, tanks are still like a thing where mm-hmm. it'll be like a place where the water is. And so if you like, you know, need to go get some water, you go to the tank and fill up you your dunk it. vessel. Makes sense. So the Naga Maiden continues, I have heard with awe of your holy tribe having suffered such things, and of your being driven away from home to wander here and there in consequence. I have fortunately been able, as I wandered, to administer somewhat to your comfort. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, One of the things that's tough for me about these old translations is they have, like, having suffered such things. It's like, what things? It feels like that should have an antecedent somewhere. Right. I mean, maybe she means that, like, there was that battle at the beginning of the story. Or maybe it's just meant to be understood that, like, the audience knows what things they have suffered and we don't need to rehash it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that she knows that, like, the Buddha's tribe, even before the Buddha is born, because in some ways this is pre-Buddha, is itself, like, a a sacred or holy tribe. This administering to your comfort, um, that probably just means that, like, oh, you know, when I was, like, petting you earlier yeah but Mm -hmm. i like the idea that she's just been following him around all this time like making sure he always has a nice bed or something i administered somewhat to your comfort and you've desired me to yield to your wishes in other respects respects. (laughs) but i have received no commands to that effect from my parents unhappily too this naga body is the curse following my evil deeds so this refers to a rebirth yeah so she's saying you know I want to hang out with you some more, but like, we got to get my parents to to sign off on it. And like, I wish that I was hotter because I have this ugly Naga body. Like she's almost um, cursed, you know, 
it's like a, a Shrek reference when like yeah, yeah it's like in her ugly form well, it does seem like Although a very strange in the, i haven't seen shrek in many a year i just know my students love to reference shrek everyone loves shrek yeah. yeah like fiona turns into an ogre at night i don't remember why i don't I think it was her dad's it was her dad's fault or something yeah it was a curse yeah yeah and so in some ways like here the the mechanism of being cursed is not that like a magician cursed you or a witch cursed you it's this is the consequence of having had negative karma from a previous life okay so it's more like when someone like facetiously says oh yes i'm living in indiana for my sins like it doesn't mean that like someone has actually condemned you to do it it just means like yeah that's what happened and i'm not i don't see it as and a now i'm stuck thing. here <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes yeah that's a good parallel also weird thing to complain about from someone who can shapeshift you can look like whatever you want well, again, that goes kind of back to, like, the animal hungry ghost, like, where are you on the on the spectrum? Like, maybe you get to shapeshift, but you're still lower down on that, you know, staircase or ladder, if you will. Yeah, according to Buddhism, human is the most fortunate rebirth because it is the rebirth from which you can attain enlightenment. Makes sense. Humans have the right amount of they're more intelligent than animals. They're not shrieking in pain all the time like the hell beings or hungry ghosts, but they're also experiencing enough suffering that they're motivated to get out of samsara whereas the gods are too busy being distracted to do anything and so they're just like burning up their good karma and they're gonna pay for it in a future life that's really interesting i did not i just assumed it was like a ladder and when you got to the top then you had the best chance to escape but if you go up too high you also can't escape from there either Mm -hmm. you're more likely to fall down in the general idea is that the gods are too distracted with their wealth and luxury to put in the work of practicing the Dharma. Makes sense. Yeah, that actually genuinely does make sense. I, again, I like the vibes. Yeah, humans have the right mix of it's a fortunate birth, but it's, also just enough suffering to like remind yeah. you it's not the place to you, be. You gotta have the dark to really appreciate the light kind of vibe. Yeah. Yes. I am disappointed that this means you can't have, like, an enlightened moose or something. Like, you have to be human. Alas, animals in a Buddhist context are canonically stupid. (laughs) And, yeah, there's, like, lots of people who are like, my cat is the most intelligent being. And I'm like, yeah, I totally agree. I've met lots of cats smarter than most humans. But, you know, I didn't invent Buddhist cosmology. Right. They're out of luck. Yeah. At least the Buddhists let them have souls. Mm Mm-hmm. True. Yes, and sometimes you'll get stories about animals that have like some degree of moral agency, but generally speaking, the lot of animals is to suffer and to be afraid and to be stupid. Oh. Buddhist cosmology. That's very sad, actually. But anyway, this poor young woman is trapped in her awesome shape-shifting dragon body, and it's very sad. <laughs> the Shakya youth answered, One word uttered from the ground of the heart and agreed to by us both, and this matter is ended. I have no idea what that means. Do you? Yeah. I'm looking at the footnote. The translator's explaining why he thinks this is difficult. Yeah, Beale does have a footnote, but it doesn't seem, it doesn't clear up much for me. To me, this seems very much like a, hey, we're under the eyes of God here in nature, you know, Dido and Odysseus. If we do it here and we both put our hearts into it, it's fine. Oh, that's that's what I'm getting out of it. I assumed he was talking about her being a naga. I did not realize we were still talking about the sex. I think that's what we're referring to here. 
Although the the other translation almost takes it in that way. So and and this one is casting her as an animal. So moreover, it is due to my evil deeds done in past lives that I've been born in the shape of a dragon. A man and an animal are beings of different ways, and their union is unheard of. The Shaki said, once I get your consent, my mind will be satisfied. So this is interesting insofar as this is like a consent-based um, sexual thing. The dragon girl said, then I shall accept your orders and do whatever you wish me to. So she's saying, we can't get together. You're a human and I'm an animal. And he says, I don't mind. And she says, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, okay. That that clears up a lot of things. That clears up the where they are on the ladder. That clears up the sexual impropriety you know, thing. They still got to get married, but like the human animal distinction is fine. The Shahi says one uttered from the ground of the heart. So he's saying, if I, in my heart of hearts, don't mind that you're a Naga and no worries. Okay. Don't worry about it. Anyway, he's apparently going to solve the other problem too, because then the Shakya youth said, by the power of my accumulated merit, let this Naga woman be turned into human shape. Invoking karma. Which is interesting insofar as, like, does he have a lot of accumulated merit? Apparently <laughs> he's from a holy people. All he's done is be born into the Shakya clan, which I think the understanding here is that he's from the same clan as the Buddha, therefore he has, like, lots of merit. Yeah, may- maybe the assumption is that you have to have built up a lot of karma in a previous life in order to be born into this clan. Mm-hmm. Oh, that makes more sense. That makes sense to me. Regardless of the fact that he was clearly, like, down to do a sexual immorality. Yeah. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> we'll bypass that impropriety for now. Does the other translation actually say karma? Because I've just realized I don't think this one ever does. I think it just always says merit. There are different words. So um, for some reason, the only word that's coming to me is sonam in Tibetan. So again, my specialty is Tibetan. So sometimes I'll know like the Sanskrit and, and the Tibetan. And for whatever reason, only it's the Tibetan is coming to mind. So what is the Sanskrit of sonam? Because in Tibetan, lei is karma and sonam is punya. Okay, yeah, so punya is the term being referenced here. What's the distinction? So karma literally is, again, related to that term of action, whereas punya has kind of a, a broader term. But functionally, punya is like just good stuff that you've built up. But they're okay. similar concepts. Got it, got it. So karma's like your dollars and punya's like your bank account. Mm, I mean, maybe it's enough to say that, like, in my mind, I don't super distinguish these things. Fair enough. Like, in, in Christianity, like, sin has, like, this, like, slightly more technical valence than... Misdeed. Yeah. Yeah. Like, but both of them are, are functionally. Yeah. Yeah. So we we can probably go with they're similar and there is a distinction, but it's not necessarily relevant to us in in reading this. Yeah. Insofar as like I I could not come up with for you like a coherent distinction right now. That is okay. So apparently just making this declaration works. The woman was immediately so converted into human shape. Which she already was, right? I guess now she's human on the inside also. (laughs) Yes. Uh, no, it's still exterior. On seeing herself thus restored to human shape, she was overjoyed. I, I, I feel like it's very ambiguous what she looked like before. Yes. Maybe she had to prove to him that she was a Naga, and so she retransformed, and now she's like permanently human. Yes. We can imply one way or the other. Now she is more or less 
human human. Or maybe as as a Naga, like her human form is kind of a snaky human. Like maybe she still has scales or something. There we go. Yeah, I wonder if this has been portrayed in art in some way. Like I'm sure there's some sort of artistic representation of this somewhere. It'd be interesting yeah. to see. So, on seeing herself thus restored to human shape, she was overjoyed and gratefully addressed the Shakya youth thus. By my evil deeds, I have been compelled to migrate through evil forms of birth. Till now, happily, by the power of your religious merit, the body which I have possessed through many kalpas... Kalpas mean like eons. Thank you. Um, so again, we have like a cyclical understanding of time. So you have like world ages that pass and kalpas are a long time. And then there's even long, there's like lots of these measures of time. So she's been getting reborn in low forms for a long, long time. Man, I wonder what she did. The body which I have possessed through many kalpas has been changed in a moment. My gratitude is boundless, nor could it be expressed if I wore my body to dust, parentheses, with frequent prostrations. I assume that's like a translator's interpretation. I don't know what that's about. Yeah, that the other version says, I'm so grateful to you that even if I smashed my body into pieces, it would not be sufficient to express my thanks. And it's like, yeah, if I work myself to the bone. <laughs> That makes sense. Yeah, then maybe she's like prostrating to express her gratefulness. If you did that enough, you'd get Let me but acquaint my father and mother. I will then follow you and obey you in all things. The Naga maiden, then returning to the lake, addressed her father and mother, saying, Just now, as I was wandering abroad, I lighted upon a Shakya youth, who by the power of his religious merit, succeeded in changing me into human form. Having formed an affection for me, he desires to marry me. I lay before you the matter in its truth. It was all very sudden. And she's not just the daughter of any Naga. She's no. the daughter of the Naga Raja. Indeed, as we find, the Naga Raja was rejoiced to see his daughter restored to human form. And from a true affection to the holy tribe, he gave consent to his daughter's request. Which is, again... Wild how how much of a roller coaster this is. Like you you just met, you changed her into a different species, and uh, her dad is like, "Well, I've heard of your people generally, and that's good enough for me. You can marry." Yeah. To be fair, this is the Buddhist tribe, and he's probably wearing something that she recognizes as this is the Buddhist tribe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Fair. This, this guy has like his reputation precedes him. Yeah. Then proceeding from the lake, he expressed his deep gratitude to the Shakya youth and said, You have not despised creatures of other kinds and have condescended to those beneath you. I pray you come to my abode and there receive my humble services. And condescended here, not in like the sense that the Shakya yep. youth is being rude, but like, wow. He like, has lowered himself. You've lowered yourself to, to hang out even with my daughter, who's like gross and ugly. <laughs> I feel so bad for her. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure about these vibes. Yeah. It's all very I mean, this translation is coming off to me as like courtly and medieval. It is, yeah, very much. I think that's the the target he's aiming at, yeah. Mm -hmm. The Shakya youth, having accepted the Nagaraja's invitation, went forthwith to his abode. On this, all the family of the Naga received the youth with extreme reverence, and desired to delight his mind by an excess of feasting and pleasure. But the youth, seeing the dragon forms of his entertainers, was filled with affright and disgust, and he desired to go. I feel like you knew what you were getting into there, buddy. Yeah. And the other translation does, like, say, the two of them lived a happy conjugal life with great pleasure that the Beale translation seems to, to leave out. Interesting. 
Interesting. Like the in the in the the Lee the, the Lee Rongshi translation, like he's happy for a while, but then he gets tired of it. Whereas oh. this one, he's just grossed out by Naga's general. Immediately. Yeah. That's a that's an interesting choice. Anyway, uh, he desired to go. The Nagaraja detaining him said, Of your kindness, depart not. Occupy a neighboring abode. Which makes a lot more sense as an offer if you've established he's been there for a while, not that he just walked in and left. <laughs> I will manage to make you master of this land and to obtain a lasting fame. All the people shall be your servants and your dynasty shall endure for successive ages. Yeah, so this is giving kind of an origin story to, like, the king that is supposed to be ruling in this place during the Buddha's time. So it's like, how did this guy get to be king? Let me tell you a story about a Naga maiden and some guy. Makes sense. Nice, nice. The Shakya youth expressed his gratitude and said, I can hardly expect your words to be fulfilled. Then the Naga Raja took a precious sword and placed it in a casket covered with white camlet. No idea what that is. I'm going to assume cloth? Probably. I'll look it up. Again, this is reading is very like sort of medieval. Best white cotton is how the other a woven fabric originally made of camel or goat's hair, very very tightly. It's close to um, gabardine, tweed, chiffon. It's like one of those like fancier fabrics. All right, so nice cloth, very fine and beautiful. And then he said to the Shakya youth, "Now of your kindness, go to the king and offer him this white camlet as a tribute." The king will be sure to accept it as the offering of a remote person. Then, as he takes it, draw forth the sword and kill him. Thus, you will seize his kingdom. Is it not excellent? Dang. All right. I like that his his pitch was, I can make you king. And then his plan was, go kill the current king and take over. Here's a sword. Yeah, you'll trick him with like this little piece of cloth over like a big, I'm picturing like a, a big, big sword. sword. A little handkerchief over it. It'll trick him and then you'll pull out the sword. You know, and right, like the implication here is that this guy deserves it just by virtue of the fact that he's like related to the Buddha. Yeah, we don't get any other like indication that he's meritorious in some way. His actions have not proven it. No. He's just like being a jerk to these Nagas. They're trying to be those beasts and and be nice to him. And he's like, you people are so disgusting. Disgusting. I can't stand you. He's like the karmic equivalent of old money. Like, he's just born into it. Yeah. He is a Nepo karmic, baby. A, a karmic Nepo baby. <laughs> he's, like, just born here. He's like, well, I deserve to be king. Might as well. This is owed to me. The Shakya youth, receiving the Naga's directions, went forthwith to make his offering to the king of Wu Changna. When yes, the king realm of Odiana, that's often held to be, like, present-day northwest India or Pakistan, And that area historically was Buddhist until Islam sort of arrives around end of the first millennium. Uh, But that's how you get places like, so if you've seen like images of the Bamiyan Buddhas that were like these huge Buddhas carved into the side of the mountains that then then, like blows up. So in this area, you have layered Buddhist and then Islam. So goes to the king of this place. When the king was about to take the piece of white camlet, then the youth took hold of his sleeve and pierced him with the sword. The attendant ministers and the guards raised a great outcry and ran about in confusion. The Shakya youth, waving the sword, cried out, This sword that I hold was given me by a holy naga, wherewith to punish the contumelious and subdue the arrogant. Oof. Contumelious? I'm, like, learning words today. Yeah. 
I, I've heard that one before, but I have no idea how to say it properly, and I'm not really sure of what it means other than it's a bad thing. Uh-huh. We can go with that. Yes. And, you know, and again, this sort of ambiguity of the Nagas is present even here. He, mm-hmm. he thinks they're hideous and ugly. He doesn't like them. But here he's saying, they're I was holy. given this man, holy Naga, you know, and he is has functionally been given a sword by the dad of a lady who lives in a lake, which is, as we know, no way to form a government. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> oh, yeah, I did look it up. It's contumelious and it means like scornful. Mm-hmm. So it's basically the same as arrogant. When really, he is the arrogant one. Yes, yes also indeed, true. Indeed. Like, we know nothing about this king, other than that he's the closest king. Like, I'm willing to believe he's a bad person because he's a king, but... <laughs> but now this guy is going to be the king, and he's going to yeah. be... N- Naga has nothing to do with it. Anyway, being affrighted at the divine warrior, they submitted and gave him the kingdom. That should not have worked. But yeah, here he's, like, portrayed as, like, quasi-divine. Which the Buddha is always portrayed as like sort of quasi divine. Like the Buddha is a human, but also he's he's not a normal human. Like you know, off the street, mm-hmm. right? Very special. He's got his godly features. On this, he oh apparently he's gonna try and do some good stuff. On this, he corrected abuses and established order. He advanced the good and relieved the unfortunate. That'll make up for it. Yeah. Okay. So I guess he's a good guy. Fine. Fine. And then with a great cortege. What in the name of Cthulhu is this? Like retinue? This is maybe That's my guess. A solemn procession, apparently. Or an entourage of retinue. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So yeah, with a retinue, he advanced towards the Naga Palace to acquaint him with the completion of his undertaking. I feel like there wasn't much of a time skip there then, so he can't have done that much. Yeah. He just goes and conquers the kingdom. He's back by the afternoon. Yeah, he's done. He got it. Now that I'm king, guys, do good stuff. I've got an errand to run. I gotta go. And then taking his wife, he went back to the capital. Now the former demerits of the Naga girl were not yet effaced, and their consequences still remained. She's still ugly. Every time he went to rest by her side, from her head came forth the ninefold crest of the Naga. So picture like nine snakes, each with kind of like a cobra hood. So you're getting, like, a full kind of, like, parasol of snakeheads. I mean, that's All definitely right. a look. I think it's awesome. Yeah. The Shakya prince, filled with affright and disgust. This, this man. Dude, you married her! Okay. Yeah. All right. Hitting on no other plan, waited until she slept, and then cut off the crest with his sword. Dang. <laughs> he tries to sort of semi-behead her. Yeah. These Medusa curls. <laughs> I am interested by the fact that he decides there is no other option but to attack my wife with a sword while she sleeps. Yeah, I like the idea that like no other plan came to him. So like, oh, he, men, he's like, I, I figured it out. I've got one plan. I don't know what else I need. Good to go. Open and honest conversation is the way to solve these issues. One would think. One would think. You'd think he'd at least try that before getting out the sword. Yes, last resort sword. The Naga girl, alarmed, fair, awoke and said, This will bring no good hereafter. She's oddly articulate for this moment. I would think she'd awake and say, Ow! (laughs) Ah! (laughs) Alas. I love this consequence. This will bring no good hereafter to your posterity. It will not be ineffectual in slightly afflicting me during my life. That is way too many words in that phrase. And your children and grandchildren will all suffer from pains in the head. (laughs) Nice. 
Yeah, I like the version in the other translation. This will not be advantageous to our offspring. Not only am I slightly injured, but all your descendants will also suffer from headaches. That's much better than this version. This I'm not I'm not a fan of this line in the translation. That needed workshop. Yeah. I just love it as like a you know, like that's why they have headaches. Yep. And so the royal line of this country are ever afflicted with this malady, and although they are not all so continually, yet every succession brings a worse affliction. Oh my gosh. Just keeps getting worse. Yeah. Now, there's kind of a stopping point here, like, because the the next part of the story is about the protagonist's son. Do we want to do the rest, or are you, like, ready to wrap up? Yeah, and I can kind of, like, summarize this last little bit and kind of, like, why it's important, because there is actually, like, a Buddhist point to all of this. Oh, well, thanks. Sure, hit us with that. Yeah, so in some ways, this is just a story that is fun and Buddhists tell it, and, like, it doesn't map on easily to Buddhist morality. Like, there's no kind of, like, lesson from this. And yet you do also see in Buddhist traditions lots of these so-called karma stories where it's like, you know, you see the effects of actions kind of having their effects through multiple lifetimes. So, you know... If you have a headache, like maybe someone in a past life, like you were a Naga and someone tried to cut off your head. like, And so it's meant to be kind of like about the workings of karma and how karma works. And both that, like the interesting point, and I actually have an article about this that was just published in the Journal of Religious Ethics about the opacity of karma, that karma is this thing that you don't know your own karma. Mm-hmm. This is a story told in forward like in forward motion, but all of us are trying to figure out our karma in the past and yet we do not know it and cannot know it. And that kind of dynamic of like trying to figure out one's karma is one that goes across Buddhism. That makes sense. If something bad happens to me in this life, I don't know if it's just chance, if it was like something I did in this life, something I did in a past life, something hundred lifetimes ago. And in some ways I deserve it because it was like, my mental continuum in a past life and in other ways you don't deserve it because it's not you it's not you buddhism is always playing with this you and not you dichotomy i like that that's a lot of food for thought yes all right okay hold on i do have one question because the the like conclusion about his son that we're kind of skipping because of time reasons has a sentence near the beginning of it that i want to ask you what this is about Mm -hmm. yeah Tathagata, when he was going back from the subjugation of the Naga Apalala, descended from space and alighted in this palace. Yes. So the Tathagata is the Buddha. That's a title for the Buddha, and it literally means thus gone one. So the one who has gone thus, and by gone, it means like gone to nirvana, has attained to nirvana. So the one who has attained nirvana, the Tathagata, there's a story about, you know, he fought and defeated this Naga who like is apparently see again, Nagas are taking on all sorts of different roles in this story. And this Naga in particular is one that had to be defeated by the Buddha. And the Buddha does sometimes like subjugate beings, but he seems to have done so maybe in like a heaven realm. So the, the Tathagata descends from space where he was hanging out and shows up in Odiana to preach a sermon to the Naga mother. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, in mainstream Buddhism, you have stories about the Buddha just kind of like going to heaven sometimes. And in particular, he's said to go to heavens to preach to his own mother who died seven days after his own birth. And so people who like modern day, lots of people like to claim, oh, the Buddha is human and there's no magic. And 
Read the text. Yeah, the, the Buddha's doing a lot here. Apparently he can come and go from space, which is honestly impressive as hell. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say that's magic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so he's he's popping out from Nirvana. So the Buddha has attained Nirvana, but Nirvana isn't a place. Fair. Okay. It is a state of being free of suffering. Oh, and he so okay. Nirvana when he dies. So there's like, there's Nirvana, which he attains at the age of 35 under the Bodhi tree. He is free from the consequences of suffering. And then final Nirvana when he dies and won't get reborn again. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All righty. Wonderful. Well, I think then, Mac, you and I can finish the story and do our segments after or later, or however we want to split that up. But Kate, thank you so much for coming on and explaining basically Buddhism to us, <laughs> and also the the great Western regions and all of these wonderful things. Thank you so much for having me on. This sort of thing is really fun, and it's fun to delve into like a particular primary text and think about what it means and just like embrace what I love about Buddhism is the weirdness of it. Definitely. Yes, that's what we are about here. <laughs> and just that it's this whole world of resources for anyone who's interested in world building. Yeah, absolutely. You guys take over as I am, alas, not educated in the ways of tabletop role playing games. That is okay. That is okay. Well, you are so welcome back anytime you want. And next time, since we have all this wonderful context, we won't need to rehash it again. We can jump straight into the text. Although we we may have to contact you with questions. Yes, indeed. <laughs> but yes, again, open invitation. Please come back whenever you like. And thank you again so much for jumping in with us today. It's just a pleasure and an honor. In case we didn't already say it, I forget if we mentioned this at the beginning, but we should say it again at the end. You also have a podcast. What's it called? Yes, I... I'm a host for the Buddhist Studies channel on New Books Network, and I also host a podcast called the Buddhist Studies Podcast. And both of those are sort of interview format podcasts with scholars who have either written a book or are teaching a class about Buddhism and are sort of aimed at being generally accessible, but also perhaps more focused on like scholarly work than I have been in this particular episode. Fewer like Lord of the Rings and... Star Wars comparisons are generally made on my other podcasts. Don't tell them Very that. That's the truth. <laughs> but if you are interested, please go check those out. We will also link those in our show notes. So everything will be available to you and all of those wonderful references. I will either look up and put in the show notes or I will beg Kate for off air. But we will get those to you, wonderful listeners. They will be available. Is there anything else you would like to plug before you leave? Yes. I just like to plug the Taylor Swift song Karma. 10 out of 10. Great I'm not familiar, but I'll take your word. Talking about it. Oh, there we go. Awesome. Thank you again so much, Kate. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. All right. Of course. Okay. All right. You want to go ahead and finish this story? We, I figure we might as well. Yeah, we might as well. All right. So, after the death of the Shakya youth, one presumes he is no longer a youth at this point. True. Well, who knows? Maybe he fucked he up enough as a king. Well... Because the rest of the sentence is his son succeeded, so he oh, has an adult son. Well, there we go. So he's probably not a youth. I mean, he wasn't named, to be fair. Uh, his son succeeded under the name of Uttarasena. Just after Uttarasena had come to power, his mother lost her sight. Tathagata, when he was going back from the subjugation of the Naga Apalala, descended from space and alighted in the palace. 
Well, there we go. Yeah, that's okay. the, that's that sentence that's, that stood out to me. Fair enough. So our, our lovely Naga has lost her snake hair and her sight at this point. Yes. That's a bit sad. Yes, but Buddha is coming to personally preach to her, which... Good, okay. Depending on your feelings about sermons, may be pretty good. I feel like she deserves to reach enlightenment, at least. So, Uttarasena was out hunting, and Tathagata preached a short sermon to his mother. Having heard the sermon from the mouth of the Holy One, she forthwith recovered her sight. Yay! I like she loses it and gets it back in, like, two sentences. Like, there's there's not, there's not some That's narrative fair. tension here. I feel like they just took it away so she could get it back from the sermon. I mean, Buddha did have to kind of do something here, you know. Tathagata then asked her, where is your son? He is of my family. As established through Shakyas. She said, he went out hunting for a while this morning, but he will soon be back. When Tathagata with his attendants were bent on going, the king's mother said, Of my great fortune, I have borne a child belonging to the holy family. And Tathagata of his great compassion has again come down to visit my house as connected with him. My son will soon return. Oh, pray remain for a short time. The lord of the world said, This son of yours belongs to my family. He need only hear the truth to believe it and understand it. If he were not my relative, I would remain to instruct his heart. But now I go. So basically, he came, he preached a sermon, and... He's about to turn around and leave, and the Nago woman is saying, you, ha- you have to stay and talk to my son. Like, he's, he's of yeah. your people. He's like, of your people, yeah. And Buddha is responding, because he's of my people, he actually doesn't need that much instruction. He can come to it on his own. Not quite. He says, oh. on his return from his hunting trip, tell him that Tathagata has gone from this to Kusinagara, where beneath the Sala trees he's about to die. And let your son come for a share of the relics to honor them. Oh. So this is this is the end of Buddha's life. He's saying, your son doesn't need a lot of instruction. Tell him where I'm going and he can come meet me there. And also, bonus, relics. Pick up a relic. And then, and then you're caring for your people too. Yeah. You know, for the future. I like it. Then Tathagata, with all his attendants, took flight through the air and went... I would love to see that, honestly. Like, this weird-looking Buddha man, like, soaring through the air with 30 other people. Yeah, I'm still kind of adjusting to how, <laughs> how Dr. Hartman how was describing him? the Buddha. Yeah. You want me to- I can pull up these features. You want to read them? Let's. Let's take like a moment should. and read the list. 32 features of Buddha. Actually, let's finish the story first, then we'll do that. Okay, yes. Afterwards, Uttarasena Raja, while engaged in the chase, saw a long way off his palace lighted up as if with a fire. Being in doubt about it, he quitted the chase and returned. On seeing his mother with her sight restored, he was transported with joy and addressed her, saying, What fortunate circumstance has occurred to you during my short absence that you should have got your sight again as of old time? The mother said, after you had gone out, Tathagata came here, and after hearing him preach, I recovered my sight. Buddha has gone from here to Kusinagara. He is going to die between the Sala trees. He commands you to go quickly to the spot to get some of his relics. The king, having heard these words, uttered cries of lamentation and fell prostrate on the ground motionless, which is different from hurrying. That's true. I feel like he's distraught that one, the Buddha's dying, and also two, that he missed he missed the Buddha. Yeah. Which understandable, but like 
get back on your horse or whatever and go, buddy. Alright, so he falls prostrate on the ground motionless. Coming to himself, he collected his cortege, which now we know is a retinue, mm-hmm. and went to the twin trees where Buddha had already died. Buddy, buddy, you could have made it. Then the kings of the other countries treated him scornfully and were unwilling to give him a share of the much-prized relics they were taking to their own countries. I like that this happens immediately on his death. People are just splitting up the relics. I mean, to be fair, once you cremate somebody, there's there's not that much left. It's not like you have to... You're not, like, carting a hand around. I know, but it, it just seems... No, actually, it seems in character for aristocrats to immediately, immediately. go like, okay, you get this and I get this. Yeah, yeah. Take a moment, guys. Yeah, Come on. yeah. On this, a great assembly of devas acquainted them with Buddha's wishes, on which the kings divided the relics equally, beginning with him. So the kings are squabbling about who gets the relics, and they're not letting Uttarasena have anything. And then heavenly beings show up and are like, hey. Start with this guy. Buddha, Buddha said so. Yeah, it has to be equal, and he gets one first. Yeah. yeah. And that's the end of the story. Very nice. See, now I'm thinking about like when heavenly beings come down in a different... Like, I'm thinking about that differently. It's much more like they're not enlightened ones. Like, heavenly beings are not enlightened. They just are in a different realm. A nicer one, though. A nicer one. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, shall we very quickly go through... The, the 32 traits of a great yes. man. Tell me what this man looks like, because I've okay. been picturing him all wrong. Okay. He has well-placed feet. This is for the great man, the venerable Gatma, a mark of a great man. Sorry, stop, stop, stop. Yes. How do you have well-placed feet? There's only well, one place your feet can be. Here's the thing. I've, I found, like, a modern interpretation. What is this from? This is from buddhaheads.com. Mm. I yeah, don't that sounds know like how, a respectable source. I don't, it was the first one on Google. They say that it's level feet that stand evenly on the ground. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then we have, under the soles of his feet, there are wheels with a thousand rims and naves complete in every way. Are these like birthmarks or does he, does he roll around on them? I think it's like the, you know, the, the wheel, like the circle of heaven. Mm-hmm. I think this is an imagery thing. Like, he's he's got a birthmark. Okay. The heels are long and deep. The fingers are long. The hands and feet are soft and tender. The hands and feet are webbed. Interesting. Which the Buddha site says, like, the lines on your hand are like nets. Like, you have well, you have deep lines on your hands instead of webbed. Hmm. But the Wikipedia says webbed. Yeah, I'm, I'm also looking so, at the Wikipedia now. Yeah. The ankles are high, which seems like a roll risk, but okay. The calves are like an antelope's. Vague. Okay. I think it means like well-shaped calf. I have to assume antelopes have great calves. I would imagine. They're really good at running. What else have we got? We've got... When he stands without bending, he can rub and stroke both his knees with his hands, which, like, I need to stand up and try. Yeah, I just did that same thing. I can't. I can't quite get there. Like, that's those are some really long arms. What is covered by a cloth is ensheathed. I think that's the uh, uh, penis thing that she was talking about. Yes. The Buddha site says, well-retracted male organ. So, like, maybe it's like, you know... A grower? All right. I don't know. That or he's uncircumcised or... 
I think it would be very funny if Grow Were Not a Show Where it was like a, an important religious symbol. So let's go with that. <laughs> That's, you could interpret it how you will. He is golden in color. He, he has skin like gold. He has fine skin. And because of the fine skin, dust and dirt do not adhere to him. Very so I guess he like never sweats either. Yeah. The body hairs arise singly, each body hair appearing in its own follicle. Is that not how hair generally works? Generally, but you can get more than one hair growing out of a different follicle. Like if you shave or if you wax, this can become a problem. Oh. Yeah. The hair bristles. His bristling hair is black, the color of colridium. That's, there's no D in that word. Collyrium. Collyrium. Which is apparently a kind of dark eyeshadow. Yeah. Turning in curls, turning to the right, specifically. If, you're, if your hair curls to the left, you're out. All right, black curly hair, specifically curling rightwards. Mm-hmm. The limbs are straight like uh, Brahma's, and Brahma is the creator god in Hinduism. Right, Which is yes. interesting, because that's Hinduism, but this is Buddhism. Okay, that's, that's fine. I feel like they're not mutually exclusive, I think. Yeah, that's fair. Like, that's, that's the thing about religions that aren't monotheistic, is they can coexist. That's true. There are seven prominent marks. Whatever those are. Right. The torso is like a lion's, which I think is, like, broad and deep-chested. You know, like how a dog... Like, you, you look at, like, a Kane Corso, and they've got, like, a broad chest. Yeah, I guess. That's how I interpret it. I don't know. Either that or he's got a hairy, a yeah. hairy chest. <laughs> I was gonna say, the torso is like a lion's, covered in fur. I guess. Between the shoulders, it is firm. So I guess like a good musculature on his back. The body is well proportioned like a banyan tree. The extent of the arm span equals the extent of the body. Oh, that's the long sense. arms thing again. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's your like gorilla index or whatever. Gorilla? In I've never heard it called that. This is a climbing thing. So yeah, if, if that index, like if you have longer fingers then your body height, you can reach farther and you can theoretically be a better climber. Yeah. Yeah. A banyan tree is a type of fig tree. It is? I've seen pictures of them. I had no idea they were related to figs. Yeah. All right. The upper back is even all around. So I guess like no hunching shoulders or... Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's just very symmetrical. I guess, yeah. The taste buds are supremely sensitive. The jaw is like a lion. Are you sure this guy's not just a lion? I don't know. Also, what what is a leonine jaw? Are, are all no his idea. teeth pointy and carnivorous? Well, that's not that's the teeth. It's all I, one item. That's not true. Your teeth fall out. Yeah, but I mean, I guess. Okay. There are 40 teeth. Oh. That's I don't think that's the normal number of teeth. So, okay. Good on you there. That's a that's an unusual characteristic. Most adults have 32 teeth. But I guess that doesn't include wisdom teeth. No, that doesn't include... Among these 32 teeth are eight incisors, four canines, eight premolars, 12 molars, including four wisdom teeth. So that includes the wisdom teeth. So bro just didn't lose all of his baby teeth, I guess. No, you can you can be born with extra teeth. It happens. My dad has more teeth than, than average. 32 huh. is just like a standard. A standard. Interesting. I've got more bones than average. I've got six extra bones. Where are they? Four are in my feet, two in each foot, and apparently I've got, like, extra little bones in my thumbs, like, next to the joint. Do they have any functional effect? Well, the ones in my feet f***ed my feet up because they would dig into the tendon, so for, like, I had to basically relearn how to walk properly after, like, surgery to, like, 
get rid of the bone. Interesting. So that one, that one was not good. The ones in my thumbs don't bother me. I just, no one had ever pointed it out before, but I sprained my wrist. So I got an x-ray to make sure it wasn't broken. And the guy, like the doctor was like looking at it and he's like, huh. And then he zooms away from my wrist and up to my thumb. And he's like, you have an extra bone up there. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, okay. I'm like, that's not my first. So I, I believe you. <laughs> So, there you go. Fun fact. Extra bone Zoe. Yeah. Yeah, six of them. The teeth are even. The teeth are without gaps. The teeth are very white. The tongue is very large. All right. The voice is like Brahma's or the sound of a cuckoo. Okay. All right. You know what? It's good that they added the cuckoo because the voice is like Brahma's. I was going to object to that because, like, how do you know what Brahma how sounds do you, like? How do you know? Yeah, like a cuckoo, I guess. The eyes are very dark. The eyelashes are like a cow's, which is to say very long. Yeah. The tuft of hair between the eyebrows on his forehead is very white like cotton. I don't know how to, I don't know how to take that. I guess your eyebrows are one color and the hair in between is is white. That can happen. Yeah, that's true. I've seen people with spots of different color in their eyebrows. There is a protuberance on the head. This, for the great man, the venerable Gatma, is the mark of a great man. All right. He's got a protuberance. There's also an additional 80 minor characteristics. We are not going to read 80 minor characteristics. There's there's a lot of them, including a navel without blemish. And apparently, aside from the uh, lump on your head, the body is spotless and without lumps. You, you can't have wrinkles. You can't have impurities. Huh. It, it's, 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 it's weird. It's interesting. Hmm. Apparently, hmm. uh... Number 27 of the 80 minor characteristics is super strength. Yeah, I saw that. Interesting. Okay, he has a top knot as if crowned with a royal flower garland. So he has both a top knot and a head protuberance. Hmm, interesting. Very interesting. It's both. All right. Well, there you go. Anyway, this is already a long episode. Let's do some segments. Sounds good. That's right. I looked up the goose. To be fair, as far as as far as geese go, the bar-headed goose is is it's a pretty goose. It doesn't really look that threatening. Well, that's actually a good place to start because I think. Bestiary. Well, we've got the goose. The humsa. The humsa. Yes, thank you. It's a goose that you can ride. A goose you can ride. What more do you want? What else did we have? Nagas, but we've mentioned them before. I don't know if nagas count as bestiaries. I guess they do. I guess they're just so sentient to me, but I guess in our little ladder there. If dragons count, nagas count. That's true. They're also classified as animals according to the staircase of karma. All right. I think that's all I had. Oh, well, and uh, Garuda, but that wasn't actually in the story. We just mentioned True. We just mentioned them. Geese that you ride. Geese, yeah, definitely geese that you ride. Also, I think it would be funny if your god popped down to have a sermon to your mother, but nobody else. Yes. You just for fun, like you're like you're a warlock, and your your you know your patron pops in, and he's like, "Hey, saw your mom. Bye." <laughs> I think it would be it would give your campaign a unique flavor to swap out all mentions of the heavens for space. True. <laughs> I really liked the idea of hungry ghosts and hell beings. Mm-hmm. 
just as another category of creature, whether it's a monster in your campaign or this is this is something that you bring up that in your faith you have to leave offerings for hungry ghosts or maybe your patron is a hungry ghost. I feel like that would be a fun warlock class. I feel like it would be weird to have to get patronage from something that's like apparently fairly powerless. I don't know. She said she said they suffer, but I don't I wouldn't consider that necessarily powerless because she did also say that they can come back and haunt you. That's true. And I feel like it, we're not strictly going for accuracy here, folks. So, play there with There're also idea. apparently a lot of them because they're their own category. Yeah. Even if it's not a a patron, it would be fun I think to have like a a town or a person who has to deal with their ancestors' hungry ghosts, and maybe you have to find the right offering to appease that hungry ghost. You could have your patron be a committee of hungry ghosts. Mmm, there's an idea. I like that. What if your patron's just Buddha? Doesn't he preach pacifism? I feel like that's going to make your adventures difficult. You don't have to like your patron. also don't want to upset him okay okay but here's the thing here's the thing kate just said that you don't have to do all of the vows so maybe you're like i don't want to do pacifism this round i'm not sure he'd patronize you if if you're not doing all the vows that's fair that's fair okay maybe maybe buddha shouldn't be your patron I do also like because we, we started this whole thing with a discussion of xuanzang xuanzang starts this pilgrimage, not as a reason to go to a holy land, but to gather knowledge, gather texts. Yeah, I, I love that it's that his pilgrimage is basically a research expedition. It's the greatest thing. That is the perfect start to a campaign, to a character backstory. You know, religious or not, you could just be a scholar who wants to pick up those things. You could be a wizard. You could be a cleric or a paladin who's like, no, I, I gotta go find you know, these sacred texts and you end up creating an ethnography on the way. Yeah. I just like it. It's really cool. Because instead of it, like pilgrimage, I always think pilgrimage, I think go to holy site. I don't think I go collect something. Right. Like the, the, I feel like the archetypal pilgrimage to most modern people, or at least most modern people in the West is Mecca. You think of Mecca. Yes. Your pilgrimage. I think of Jerusalem, but I'm biased because of medieval studies. That's true. I don't know why I don't also think of Jerusalem, because I hear about that all the time when I read medieval texts, but I, I always think a pilgrimage is going to Mecca. Yeah. But this is a completely different kind of pilgrimage, and I think that's interesting. Yeah, I like it. I like it a lot. Future Mac here. Listening back to this during editing, I realized that in saying, oh, this would be a great framework for like an epic story or campaign, we're basically reinventing Journey to the West. So if that concept appeals to you, Consider reading Journey to the West. It's very good. Related to holy texts, the other idea I had written down was those spiritual teachings that are like sealed in pots and stuff. Ooh. Like that. Yes. And apparently some of them left with nagas. That's a way to spice up your dragon hordes. Like, yeah, he True. has like gold and stuff, but he also has a pot with secret spiritual knowledge in it. I like that. You could easily turn that into spell scrolls, but I challenge you to keep that just as cool as it is and make it actual, like, spiritual knowledge that you then get to, like, turn in 
to whatever local monastery is around or like you go on a quest or maybe the local monastery is like, hey, are you going up on that mountain? Hey, these Nagas are reported to have XYZ thing, blah, blah, blah. Fetch quest. Yeah. Either way. And that could really tie in really well with doing a Xuanzang style pilgrimage as a campaign. True. It's like some of these texts you want to look at, dragons have them. Dragons have them. I like that. Perfect campaign right there. All right. I also like the idea of maybe someone in your campaign is trying to have the 32 marks of the perfect cleric or something mm-hmm. that, you know, you could really f*** with a player doing that. You're like, yes, here's 32 things that you need to do. You need to have purple hair. You need to have, and then they have to figure out a way to come to the physical perfection for their faith. I'm not sure it counts if you do it artificially. What do you mean? All of D&D is artificial. No, I mean, like, if like one of the things was you have to have black hair. Like, I don't think you can just dye your hair black. I think it has to be black. If not at birth, or then by, like, divine miracle or something. Okay, but come on. What if you tried to do it to trick a god? Tell me that that is not a good campaign. Okay, that's a, that's a good campaign. I've that's a good campaign. I think it would be pretty fun. Or, like, even if you had to have, like, you need to show up as a prophet, and that prophet looks a certain way, or has 32 or, like, five or whatever distinguishing marks in the sacred text. So you do those things, and then you show up to the temple to try and convince the high priest that you're this prophet guy. That's a good idea. I like that. Just saying. I would want to add, for extra complication, there are multiple competing translations and traditions of what those five marks are. So you have to try and figure out a way to make it work. You have to scout out. You have to, like, scout out the temple and see what the high priest believes. Yeah. I like that. You should give your player, like, a list that's kind of ambiguously translated. Like like that thing with the wheels on the feet. So that they think maybe they need roller skates. Yeah. Yep. I like it. Wheelies. You wheel your way into the temple. I like it. That's good. Okay. That's all I had, though. Tolkien tally. There was a Tolkien, wasn't there? What was it? The the goose. The eagles. Yes. The eagles could be a connection to these texts. I think it's actually not unreasonable to assume that Tolkien took ideas from Indian texts because like he was a linguist. He would have been aware of Sanskrit. He would have like read stuff about it. He would have been interested. The other really interesting thing about this is that C.S. Lewis was torn between Christianity and Buddhism. I think he picked wrong. (laughs) I can't say one way or the other. (laughs) However, (laughs) however. I just wanted to see how you'd react to that. That's fair. That's fair. He made his choice. However, I think that it's even more likely than Kate thinks because I'm sure that C.S. Lewis talked his head off about what he read in Buddhist texts. I do kind of want to see a Buddhist version of Narnia, I gotta say. I want to know what that looks like. That would be really funny. Instead of the Jesus lion, we could have had the Buddha lion. Which would have looked closer. Yeah, apparently he has the right torso <laughs> and jaw. Interesting. A leonine chest. But yeah, anyway. Alright, onward. Onward. The Dungeon Master's Dictionary. I like hungry ghosts. I think hungry ghosts is a good word. Also, hell beings. I just think those are good terms. 
These are the doing of our translator, but I would like to point out cortege, meaning retinue, yep. and mm-hmm. contumelious, meaning... Yes. Um, what was it? Basically arrogant. Arrogant. What a word. And then all of the wonderful words that Kate has said that we are never going to be able to pronounce again. Like, what would... Preta. Yeah. Which was... That's the word for hungry ghost. Well, Preta definitely should be in the list then, as, as hungry ghost. Yeah. Yeah, hungry ghost. The images are quite scary, actually. They look pretty They look pretty creepy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Highly encourage you guys to, to look them up. They're kind of freaky looking. I mean, a lot of the ones I'm getting are, are clearly from, like, more modern media, but, like, they're still, like, wild. Yeah. The Scroll of Hungry Ghosts. That's creepy. That's a Japanese depiction. Hmm. Oh, apparently it's not even just a Buddhist thing. According to Wikipedia, they are described in Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, and Chinese folk religion. Interesting. So maybe that's just something that was in the zeitgeist that Buddhism, like, incorporated. Maybe, yeah. Street smarts! What can we learn here? You can be born into great karma. You can be a karma nepo baby. And if you aren't, I'm sorry, you missed your chance. Yep, gotta gotta get as much karma as you can in this life. But remember, as Kate said, you don't actually know. I guess unless you're born into that one particular tribe. Yeah. Maybe don't insult your wife's family, whether or not they're Naga. If you are a super cool shape-shifting dragon woman, don't marry some guy. Don't, like, just random human you met today? Like, just don't do it. Don't do it. Maybe... Like, if you're gonna marry a human, at least make sure he's cool first, because you did not... Yeah. This, 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 that did not happen here. Vet him. Yeah. It is better to not take a vow than to take a vow and then violate it. True. I think that works for every situation, too. I liked that explanation of, like, the rules. Yeah, I liked it. I liked it. That's what I've got. Sometimes you just have to wait around for the next life and do it better that time. Yeah. Yeah. No pressure. You'll get another chance. Yeah, everybody's at their own stage in their journey. Yeah, that's a good you know? lesson. Don't don't judge yourself or judge others, you know? One of the things that my mom liked to say was, you know, your molehill might be somebody else's mountain, and your mountain might be somebody else's molehill. Like, don't judge them just because you have an easier time with it. Yeah, yeah it's a good one. One last lesson. Attacking someone with a sword while they sleep is never the only plan. True. Make a better plan. Make a make a much better plan. There are going to be other options if you just think about it for a second. I mean, it has worked historically very well. Like, Judith did it. It's an effective strategy, but not against your It shouldn't your wife. be your first. It shouldn't be your first. Let's go with that. Best moment. I mean, I do kind of like how she presumably was already in human form and then was shocked when she was still in human form and she's pretty now. And it's yeah. like, girl, what, what, you, what is going on? What, what do you look like? Oh, but you know what's better? What? The Buddha coming from space. Yeah, that was what I was going to say. That's, That's really impressive moment. is like the Buddha comes from space. Yeah. 10 out of 10. Buddha, yeah, Buddha comes from space. That's excellent. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's a choice of the original text or if it originally said something like the heavens and the translator like chose space. Space. But it's a good image and I like it. It's good. It's really good. 
the court. This is hard. I'm not really invested a whole lot in any of these people. I'm gonna do I'm gonna do the the kiddo, the not the king's son, but the first king. The original uh he's just called the, the Nepo baby. Yeah. yeah. Nepo baby. I'll take him. Alright, I will take the Naga Maiden, because she's, nice. she doesn't do a whole lot, and I'm not sure about her decision-making, but she is a super cool shif- shape-shifting dragon woman. She's super cool. Final rating. Gosh. With all of this beautiful context that we have surrounding it now, I give it... I'm gonna give it, like, an 8. The context really helps. It really helps. Because, like, especially knowing what this tribe is and what's going on here. And I, I just love that Buddha had to pop back down and he's like, hey, 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 you guys didn't forget about me, right? Okay, just checking. I like that he's included. Come meet me here for relics. I'm dying. Yeah, yeah. I like it. You know what? I agree. I'm going to also give it an eight. Nice. Welcome to the Leech's Corner. So, chrysolite develops from the heat of the sun and the humidity of the air afternoon at the ninth hour of the day. It is almost as if it contains living strength. If it is near when the offspring of a sheep or other beast is born, its strength fortifies the animal so that it begins to move sooner than usual. Uh, Sorry, it's a magic strength stone. Yes. It's full of the abstract concepts of strength. Yes. And that just leaks out if something's born near it. I guess, yeah. A person who has fever should heat up some wine and hold chrysolite over the vapor of that wine. Its sweat should be mixed with the wine and he should drink the warm wine. Remember, this is because they think the condensation is the gemstone sweating. Right, yeah. He should also place the chrysolite in his mouth for a little while. Here we go again. If he does this often, he will be well. One who ails his heart should dip the chrysolite in olive oil and then smear it over the place it hurts. Hmm. Okay. It's like in your in in your heart, so I guess you'd like smear it over your chest. Yeah. I was expecting ails his heart to be like a, a romantic thing, but it sounds like it's literally referring to chest pains. Yeah. Alright. This stone strengthens knowledge in a person who always carries it with him. One with good knowledge and skill should place this stone over his heart. As long as it lies there, his knowledge and skill shall not fail him. Chrysolite has the powers which are in the day's seven hours. Airy spirits shrink back from this stone a bit. Not a in bit. full, but a bit. <laughs> a bit. Well, that that's helpful. Yeah. It's something. I like that idea as a magic item. It's like, it, it, yeah. it repels spirits, but like, only a little. A like, little they don't bit. like it, but like, it, it's, it's yeah. fine. Yeah. It's like mosquito repellent, right? They'll yeah. go to somebody else near you, but they won't, they won't mess with you. All right. Jasper. Jasper develops when the sun is beginning to set after the ninth hour of the day, and it is warmed by the fire of the sun. It is more from air than from fire or water. It has varying heat because when the sun is setting, its heat is often in a cloud. What? The, like, the sun's heat is in a cloud. Okay. So it, like, it doesn't always get the heat of the sun in it. A person who is deaf should hold a Jasper to his mouth. And breathe on it with his warm breath so that it becomes warm and moist. Then he should put it to his ear and place fabric over the stone, thus closing the ear until the heat transfers to the ear. The stone develops from fresh air, so it breaks up illnesses of the humors and the person recovers his hearing. It's You're sending good air into the ear. Love this plan. Trouble hearing? Put rocks in your ears. Yeah. That'll help. Yeah. 
Oh boy. One who has thick nasal discharge should put Jasper near mm. his mouth and breathe on it with his warm breath so that it becomes warm and moist. Then stick it up your nose. <laughs> I was really hoping that was not where that was going. Stick it up your nose and press the nose with your hand. This makes the heat enter into the head so that the humors in the head are loosened more quickly and gently and you and you will be better. You're going to lose that rock. That's not going to work very well. The person in whom commotions of the humors, that is get, remember that's, that's gout, mm-hmm. are rising, whether in his heart, kidneys, or any other bodily part, should place Jasper on that area and press until the area warms up. So it's it's like one of those um, heat packs mm-hmm. when you go skiing. You stick it over the area and you get warm. <laughs> I'm not sure what about me makes you think I've ever gone skiing in my I life. I know. I immediately said it. I'm Look, this one's to our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, if you press the Jasper on that area until it warms up, the torment will cease since the good heat and strength of the Jasper heals and calms humors which are too hot or too cold. When thunder and lightning appear in dreams, it is good for a person to have Jasper with him. Phantasms and menaces are dispersed and disappear. So I guess thunder and lightning are like the harbingers of phantasms and menaces. I guess. Yeah, that's the only way I can interpret that. Interesting that that's unstated. It's just like assumed if thunder and lightning appear in dreams, like there's a problem. There's a problem. Yeah. All right. Final paragraph. When a woman brings forth an infant from the time she gives birth through all the days of infancy, she should keep Jasper on her hand, like as a ring or something. Malign spirits of the air will be much less able to harm her or the child. The tongue of an ancient serpent stretches out towards the sweat of an infant as it emerges from its mother's vulva. Okay, I was going to say something about how airy <laughs> spirits are, are back, but that last sentence was was something. Yep, I'm, I'm, I'm going to read it again. Please. The tongue of an ancient serpent stretches out towards the sweat of the infant as it emerges from its mother's vulva. At that time, he is trying to ensnare the child as well as the mother. Also, if a serpent sends out its breath in any spot, place a jasper there. The breath will be weakened so that it will be less harmful and the serpent will stop breathing in that place. <laughs> is that a problem that people are having? I Snakes think the assumption is that the breath is poisonous and it's like contaminating the area. I think so. I I mean, were snakes a problem in houses while giving birth? I feel like that's not a problem when you give birth. Like, I feel like you'd notice if there's a snake slithering towards your vulva. I mean, there's a lot of remedies that are about snakes, so I have to assume that snakes were a problem. I'm not sure that ancient serpent thing is about a literal snake. That might be the devil. It could be the devil. Hmm. But in that case, like, that seems like a non sequitur. Yeah. Yeah. So wear some Jasper when you give birth, just in case. Yeah, just to keep your baby safe from the ancient serpent stuff. (laughs) That doesn't make any sense, but okay. Yikes. Yikes, Satan wants to lick babies. Baby sweat. Ugh. That's wild. That is a wild statement. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Satan, the ancient serpent, is coming for your babies. Yeah, I get... He's gonna lick them. I guess it's not completely out of nowhere, because it did just say, like, when you're giving birth, wear a jasper, and I guess that's, like, why? Because yeah. the devil is going to lick the baby otherwise. <laughs> and we, as we all know, once you lick it, it's yours. <laughs> 
But also, like, it doesn't say anything spiritual there. It just says the ancient serpent. Like, is there is there a serpent that is, like, sneaking through the village? Like, I smell a woman <laughs> who is pregnant. <laughs> like, yes, we're, we're misinterpreting this it. This is all about uh, old Jeff the snake. I guess. <laughs> it was just a really weird snake that lived in that part of Europe. Yeah. I just, I just kind of want to know, like, is this a problem for people in medieval Germany, for instance? Where are they getting this? People were very worried about them. Snakes are everywhere in, like, the leech book and stuff. Like, half of the remedies you see in medieval texts are like, oh yeah, this protects against snakes. I mean, okay, I guess there are snakes in Europe. Yeah, lots. I mean, not lots, but, like, some. Some of them are venomous. Huh. I guess that's never anything that I ever had to consider because there are no snakes in Alaska. Like, there's just not. They don't survive. Yeah, I guess it's pretty cold there. Yeah. Huh. So I've never really thought about that. Like, I've never really lived in a place where I'm like, oh, I better be aware that there are snakes. You lived in Texas. That's true. I, I never really thought about snakes there, though. There are multiple species of venomous snakes in the American yeah, South. Yeah, that's, that's true. I know, I, like, I know about that, that I was, I was more worried about the armadillos. Why would you worry about armadillos? They carry disease. I think they're cute, but they carry disease. Yeah, but like, they're... Only if you're, like, cuddling with them. That's true. But they would, like, they would be around, because I lived, like, near a nature preserve. Oh, okay. So they would, like, come out at night, and I was like, ah, I'm taking out the trash, please leave me alone. I like them. Anyway. Yeah. I don't know. I get, I've never lived in Texas. Maybe armadillos are more threatening than I than I think. I just never knew how to take them. They were very cute. They were very sweet. Anyway, wear Jasper when you're giving birth, just mm-hmm. in case of the snakes. The ancient serpent. Yep. Coming for your kids. <laughs> Keep that one in mind. Any moms to be, or dads to be, anybody. I feel like we've all learned something here. We have. We've learned so much. Anyway, we'll see where that goes. Yeah. And yeah, now, well, now we have all this. It's been a snake-themed episode. Has a bit, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I guess if you want a Naga to come visit, you don't wear Jasper. There you go. Yeah. Check your jewelry. Maybe that's why you're missing out on your sweet Naga partner. That's the only reason. I'm sure. All right. Well, with that, we will see you all next time. (laughs) Yes, good place to end. Thank you for listening to the Maniculum Podcast. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes to help support us. If you're interested in exclusive merch and continuous exclusive content, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. To see our sources and our notes, check out our blog on themaniculumpodcast.com. And hey, come get involved in our community. We have a Discord group that you can join, and you can find links to our server on our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, our Twitter, at Maniculum, and our Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. Original music by Walker. Check out their project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. Tor- ter- terms. <laughs>